Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a psychiatrist talks about access to mental health care and what you need to know about finding a therapist. So if, you, if you're already going to church or mass and, and you know one of your uh, providers there, uh, clergy members, that a lot of them do have training in, in counseling and maybe that's an easy place to start. A doctor who cares for people who live on the streets tells how he goes about providing house calls for the homeless. So while it need an upfront medical bag, they'll take on-site prescriptions, on-site medications and supplies to the individual from my med bag. And we'll discuss medical ethics with two members of Upstate University Hospital's ethics consult team. The idea of saying that you don't want to be sustained on a ventilator is a judgment that is connected to your medical condition. All that in a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from a physician who provides health care on the streets of Syracuse. Then, we'll have a discussion about medical ethics with two members of the Upstate University Hospital Ethics Consult Team. But first, advice for how to find a mental health provider. How do you go about finding a mental health provider or therapist? Let's ask Dr. Thomas Schwartz. He's a professor in the Interim Chair of Psychiatry and the Senior Associate Dean of Education for SUNY Upstate. Thanks for being here, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks for having me. So what's it like to try to find a therapist or a psychiatrist in the Syracuse metro area? I think it's likely very difficult for, for people nationwide, not, not just in Syracuse. I do think there's a shortage of mental health providers. And that would be psychiatrists, psychologists, clinical social workers. I, I think there are more people either developing psychiatric problems or being diagnosed with them. And there's, there's just not enough providers. So I think it is very difficult. Just a shortage across the board everywhere. Yeah. So uh, would it be even harder in rural areas because there's fewer people to begin with? And Yeah, I think we noticed that as well. And, and certainly the major metro areas will have more services. We also have more people. Uh, but yes, I suspect the, the more rural you are, the, the harder it would be to find, let's say, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Yeah. So is it an easy answer to say why there's such a shortage? I think there's multiple factors. I think as far as psychiatry, I'm a psychiatrist. I know, know this data a little bit more. There, there certainly seem to be more and more junior psychiatrists, new psychiatrists coming into the field. It, it seems to be a more preferred area of medicine to study. But despite that, I think we have a very aging group of psychiatrists who are retiring. And so there are more people retiring than, than coming into the field. So I do think there is a, a shortage there for that reason. We have psychiatric nurse practitioners that I didn't mention before. There are more and more schools and programs, and we have one here at Upstate. And for example, the, the psychiatric workforce is being very well augmented with some good psychiatric nurse practitioners. But again, it, it's a rate that we would want to speed up or we're still going to have a shortage. Well, and um, we'll get into more about the differences of the, the different uh, professionals, but tell me about, um, are, are they solo providers? Are they part of groups? What's the landscape like professionally for mental health providers? 
I think it's a little bit of everything. We, we still have the traditional solo practice provider that has their own office. They're the only person in the office, though I do think that is get, getting more rare with time. It is really hard to run a business with one person. We, we do have some full-service clinics, um, Syracuse Behavioral Health. I believe their name changed to Helios, uh, the Brownell Center, uh, St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, there are some very big clinics uh, with a lot of uh, a lot of clinicians. And, and so you go the gamut from the solo provider to the, the full-service, very large clinic. So a person who has health insurance, will their health insurer find a therapist for them? If, if I called my health mm-hmm. insurance and said, I'm looking for a therapist, will they find me somebody? I think going through the insurance is a good idea, but to answer your question, I don't think they will personally reach out and, and find you an appointment. My, my experience is most of them will have a web-based list of providers that they will cover, and it really is up to the patient or, or the family of the patient, if they can't do it themselves, to frankly start calling. So with this type of shortage, it's not uncommon to stop at the tar- start of a list, the top of a list of, of 10, 12 doctors and have to call until you find an opening. Wow. And then um, that's assuming I have insurance. If I don't have insurance, I'm probably even going to have a lot harder time, right? right? Yeah, I think in the absence of insurance, there's not really a list that you can find. It would make sense to start calling some of those larger clinics. And the clinics generally are set up, I think, to help people find insurance, whether Mm. it's Medicaid, Medicare, uh, sometimes the exchange or the private insurances. I do think some of the larger service clinics would try to help you with that. Outside of that, you might have to shop around to find a clinician that's willing to uh, accept a cash payment. Sometimes we'll call that a sliding scale. It could be $10, could be $100, and, and there are, there are some, they're rarer, they're harder to find, but there are some people that would work with you that way. Would a primary care provider be able, would they have like an in with a group maybe, or help? would you advise someone to go to their primary care provider for a referral maybe? Yeah, I actually think primary care is a great place to start. More and more, our pediatricians, family practice uh, doctors, internal medicine doctors are are receiving more and more training in how to detect and manage, let's say, depression and anxiety. And I think primary care is the number one place that antidepressants are prescribed in the U.S. It's not from psychiatrist's office. So by volume, I do think our primary care, my primary care colleagues are doing a lot of work. So starting there actually could be an answer. You may not need therapy. You may be able to be helped with a single medication. Uh, outside of that, you're right. I, I would hope that the primary care doctors and, and clinicians you know, may have an in with certain psychiatrists or, or practices. But to be candid, many of these services are very, very full. So I wouldn't rely on the, the idea that the primary care doctor can get you in faster, though he or she could start your treatment while, right. you're, while you're waiting. Okay, okay. Yeah. good point. Well, let's talk about the difference between the, the variety of therapies mm-hmm. um, or therapists that are out mm-hmm. there, the social workers, psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. You mentioned nurse practitioner. Yeah. Um, what's, what's the difference? So I think you have plenty of options, like if you are looking at your insurance list, there will, they'll list all these different providers that are out there, and uh, a fair amount of them can provide psychotherapy, which is uh, talk therapy uh, or counseling psychotherapy. There's lots of words we use, but a well-trained person can help you through your, your stressful events, through your depression, through your anxiety. 
and you have some choices. Um, I think you could even start with uh, a clergy member, uh, a pastor, a priest. Mm. Uh, it's one of those untapped resources. So if, you, if you're already going to church or mass and, and you know one of your uh, providers there, uh, clergy members, that a lot of them do have training in, in counseling, and maybe that's an easy place to start. Some primary care offices will have a built-in therapist or, or your general doctor might know you the best. So I do think you can get informal counseling and therapy that way. Well, schools also have counselors, right? Absolutely. School counselors, if you're a college student, most colleges will have student counseling programs. Um, So I I think those are great ideas. So these are untapped areas that a lot of people don't think about. From an office-based professional point of view, um, social workers, uh, many of them can uh, go to school and get training to become psychotherapists, and, and, and they're very good at what they do. The psychologists, the PhDs, will go through more training, and they're very good at at psychotherapy as well. I find that the psychologists have uh, more specified training in things like cognitive behavioral therapy, psychodynamic Mm. psychotherapy. Uh, They they get a little bit more refined in their approach, and some of those techniques are better for certain psychiatric problems than others. And then psychiatrists, we, we prescribe medications. We're also trained in psychotherapy. Uh, nurse practitioners, um, similarly. So you have lots of choices. And I think if you wanted more of a medication approach, you're going to want to find a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner. If you really don't like medicines and you really want to focus on psychotherapy, probably a clinical social worker or psychologist would make sense. Uh, What about uh, for children or adolescents? Do all of those uh, professions cover children and adolescents or is that yeah, I think the, the same would go for uh, really any age group at this point. The same kind of provider can provide the same kind of services regardless of age. Though, some people specialize. I'm an adult psychiatrist. I don't treat many kids. My colleagues who are child psychiatrists and child psychologists will only treat kids. So you would want to aim for somebody that's specific for your age group. So it seems like with this shortage, um, at you know, if you're in crisis, you're going to need help from whoever you can find it from. But in the in the best situation, you'd want to choose someone that you uh, get along with, right? Yeah. Personalities matter somewhat, yeah. right? In therapy, so how do you yeah. how does that factor in? So again, to be pessimistic with the shortage we're talking about, you you may not have a lot of choices. Some people would prefer a male therapist, female therapist, younger, older. But sometimes you really have to start somewhere where there's an opening, and I think that's okay. I do think it's important to find a good fit. Uh, my, my training in psychotherapy would suggest it may not matter if you're male, female, uh, old or young. It's, it's kind of what goes on in the therapy session uh, that matters the most. And I think a good therapist, regardless of their, their background, their gender, their race, their age, should be able to put themselves in your shoes. So I think a good fit's important, but but I do think a good therapist can adapt uh, and and meet the patient where they're at. So um, I I recommend finding somebody and and see how it goes. Therapy, to me, and counseling probably should be at least a few months, if not six months. Uh, Sometimes you get off on the wrong foot like we do in any relationship, and then you figure that out as you go, which is part of therapy. Uh, You make amends, you move on, you you, you figure each other's patterns out, and and that's really, to me, the best kind of therapy. You kind of grow with your your therapist. Um, So a match is good, but it it is also not the end of the world. Well, and it seems like if you're in crisis, say you're, you you know, potentially depressed or suicidal, um, you're at a low point. And this is not going to be an easy thing to find a, a therapist. So 
What advice do you have for getting started? So I think one thing you mentioned is is suicide. We unfortunately have an epidemic. The, those numbers are going up. Uh, more and more people are considering suicide, attempting suicide, completing suicide. And, and I think if you're at that point, you probably need to go to your nearest emergency room. Uh, in theory, you know, there's somebody there to help you. There's always a doctor there. They might be an emergency medicine doctor. They're, they're, they're trained to help people out. Many emergency rooms have consultation services where they would call people like me to come down as well. So I think if you're in that kind of crisis and your, your life is on the line, getting to an emergency room, calling 911 makes sense. Uh, there are 800 number um, suicide hotlines that are very helpful as well. So I, I do think that kind of crisis requires you to, to seek help. If you're if you're somewhat considering it, hurting yourself, but you don't have a plan, again, I think talking to your primary care doctor, a clergy member, again, while you're trying to search through your, your insurance list to find right. somebody, makes a lot of sense. Just getting that off your chest and the weight lifted off your shoulders about how you're feeling sometimes is, is a good preventative thing. So just talking even to family members, perhaps. But I do think if you reach the level where you may not be safe, I think a 911 call, get an ambulance to the hospital, get a family member to the hospital, let us at least start the evaluation process Make, makes a lot of sense. Can that process lead to finding a therapist for the person? I mean, could, would the emergency department be able to help you? find so, someone in the community? So I think so. Uh, in, again, there are no guarantees. There, Again, there is a shortage. Just going to the emergency room does not guarantee you'll have a therapist or a psychiatrist next week. Uh, that somewhat is a, a, a rumor mill. Does it speed the process up? I, I would say sometimes. Uh, some of your bigger hospitals will have uh, a, a larger uh, outpatient clinic. So St. Joseph's, for example, has a, a very good mental health center that, that, that's large and can accept more people, but they can be relatively full. Here at University Hospital, we have a very busy emergency room. We see many patients like this, but, but our outpatient clinic is very, very small. And we have less openings. So it's really unique to whatever system you enter into. Um, we always try uh, to link people up, but oftentimes you will also leave with a list. So if mm. we can shore somebody up, get them uh, to do better through an intervention where we think they can manage navigating through a list, calling a few people to get set up, we'll, we'll let them do that. Well, if it seems like the demand for mental health professionals is so high and we've got this shortage, um, would this not be a great field to get into if you want to help people? So I, I think so. Uh, I certainly like w what I do, and, and the field has really been in a, a shortage since uh, I've been in the business since 2000. But as I said, it's getting uh, more short. So I think it's, it's a great opportunity for employment, uh, for growth in the profession. Um, it, it's hard work, but, but we, we do enjoy it. So I do think if you're a budding um, social worker, nurse practitioner, uh, physician assistant, uh, physician, and, and you really have an inkling towards this work, um, I think it's a great field. We, we still have, we can still talk to our patients. Uh, you know, we're not really constrained often by a five or eight minute visit. You know, we might have 15 minutes to an hour, hour and a half sometimes. So what I, I like about it is we actually get to talk to people uh, a whole ton and, and the rest of medicine seems to be speeding up, you know, more patients per hour. Yeah. So it's an enjoyable field and, and you really do get to know, know your patients. Do you go home feeling like you've made a difference in someone's life or seeing um, progress in a patient? 
So I, I think so. Some patients uh, takes uh, weeks to months to years to see the kind of improvements we'd like to see. Other people you help right away. It's really a, a bell-shaped curve of, of how people respond. But I, I think it's rewarding on uh, the short-term, middle-term, and long-term level. But you have to be in the, the field long enough to see all that happen. Sure. So kind of to summarize, um, what is your advice for someone who can't easily find a therapist? What, what should they do? I think the first thing I would do is take your health insurance card, usually on the back is an 800 number. I would call that number and ask for a list of possible providers. This is web-based. You might even be able to Google that on your own. And you start making phone calls. And if you truly don't find anybody on that list, I would call your insurance company back and talk to a real person and suggest you've used all their resources. They may specifically call some of those offices to try to create an opening. And that would be a a trick. The other one would be to go to your family doctor, ask if they have connections. Uh, You certainly could try the emergency room uh, or the central emergency room called CPAP. It's a psychiatric emergency room in town. You could make some phone calls and ask for advice. But I would use the list and and I would try to pressure your insurance company to help. Well, thank you so much. This has been an interesting topic and I appreciate your insight. My guest has been Dr. Thomas Schwartz. He's professor and interim chair of psychiatry at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what it's like providing health care to the homeless population on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today I'm going to talk with a physician who works with a nonprofit in Syracuse called In My Father's Kitchen. Dr. David Lehman is a distinguished service professor of medicine at Upstate. He practices internal medicine and he's also a clinical pharmacologist. Thank you for being here, Dr. Lehman. You're welcome. I wanted to start by asking you, why did you want to become a doctor? Um, I was a pharmacist before I was a physician, oh. and um, I decided that I'd like more autonomy and uh, to prescribe the drugs myself, um, and it also brings brought me closer to people. Okay. So uh, what age were you when you went to medical school? 26. 26. Yeah. So a little older than the average. Yeah. Yeah. A few years older. Okay. Well, uh, how did you get involved in In My Father's Kitchen? And tell us a little about In My Father's Kitchen. Well, In My Father's Kitchen is a uh, nonprofit uh, started by John Tomino, who is used to um, own Osties in Syracuse and has been working uh, providing uh, uh, food for homeless people on the streets. Uh, John and I got linked up serendipitously. Really, uh, what... what, uh, um, my my role is is to start a new program that we've started already called House Calls for the Homeless. That's the uh, core focus of what I'm about. Um, when I started here uh, 25 years ago, um, my focus was on um, teaching 
residents, medical students, uh, principals of drug therapy, practicing uh, in, in outpatient and inpatient medicine uh, with internal medicine for, for within the Department of Medicine at Upstate. Um, I um, was the director of the clinic for, for a while. Um, I was department uh, the division chief of internal medicine for 10 years and vice chair of the department. Um, and so I, and uh, as of 2013, I um, uh, decided to not do outpatient medicine and do only inpatient medicine for five years as a hospital medicine doctor here at Upstate. Um, during that whole period of time, uh, and actually uh, prior to coming here, I'd been in, heavily involved in international medicine where um, I've been, I went to Nepal, India, Kenya, uh, I, um, uh, was... So those are like, uh, medical missions? Me medical, medical missions in the sense that, um, I would go to, uh, uh, say the hospital in, in Nepal and Kathmandu that services, uh, the indigent population there, and I developed a pharmacology curriculum for their medical school there, um, and that was a new medical school that was started, uh, did that for eight years, monthly, um, uh, India, I helped develop the clinical pharmacology tract at a medical school in Mumbai. I worked for a year in Kenya. I, went, I worked for a year in Kenya as a pharmacist in a Bush, a Bush hospital uh, before I went to medical school. And um, uh, we, Upstate has a, uh, has a clinic in Ecuador uh, following the, following the um, uh, earthquake that was there several years ago. I've been there uh, twice. Um, in, I, after Hurricane Matthew in Haiti in 2016, I'm sorry, in tw I think it was 20, yeah, 2016, um, went there for, for medical relief following the hurricane and cared for people there with International Medical Relief Organization, which is a uh, nonprofit organization that's international. Um, and then last year, uh, after Hurricane Maria, I went down for another week of, uh, of uh, work uh, following that hurricane in Puerto Rico. So it seems October. like you're you're sort of pulled to serving the underserved. Right. So so this is why I mention this. I'm only mentioning the experience simply because um, the uh, my experience with the with international medicine and working with with health groups combine that and link that back to my experience in the hospital. In the hospital over the past five years, um, you know, I've seen lots of uh, instances of uh, recurring admissions, um, uh, bad infections that went untreated. Uh, and, and kind of a revolving door in the emergency department for people coming in and out um, who don't have doctors. And there's, it's, 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 not an, it's not the majority, but it's a very significant minority of patients uh, are homeless that have that problem. Um, so they'll, they'll uh, wait for the thing to fester, come in, and then they'll get admitted to the hospital, and I, then they got to be cared for with heart infections and blood infections for six weeks in the hospital. In addition to that, people don't have their... They, don't have doctors because they can't get to their doctor's appointment because they're homeless and they don't have any transportation. So they get dropped from the clinic. Um, they won't. They won't be a, have anyone prescribing their medications for their blood pressure, their heart problem, or whatever, and they'll end up back in the hospital. I saw last week a woman on, on the streets um, that came in with heart failure because she didn't couldn't have a doctor prescribing her blood pressure medicine. So she's in the hospital for five days, um, and that can all be abrogated for that. So. Um, Taking those two things together, um, I thought uh, I would. So, so the homeless population really is a um, uh, similar to many of the outreaches that I've done internationally, in that it's an underserved, indigent population that has no health care, or spotty health care anyway. 
Um, and so um, I thought a forward, a forward point of care uh, treatment therapy doctor at the, their point of, of where they're at um, is, would be uh, a good idea in order to um, stop, um, prevent, treat them, treat them with dignity, give them caring, a caring hand, et cetera, to help them get them off the streets, at the same time treating their medical conditions. Um, so it makes it sounds like it makes yeah, a right. lot of sense. And, but and it's it's not just a local Syracuse thing. There's the, I just got back from Pittsburgh and also Portland, Maine, where they have similar programs ongoing, huh. and it's it's an international kind of thing. They have conferences in Amsterdam last year, and they have one every year, different international. It's an international type of effort called Street Medicine Initiative. Is Street Medicine? That's kind of the generic name for it. Mm. Our flavor of this in Central New York and Syracuse is called House Calls for the Homeless. That's what we, we developed. Uh, so how, do, how does this work? You right, go out right. with... So this is the point. I, I give you all this backstory simply because um, I decided to do this uh, and uh, leave my uh, hospital-based practice at the, in the end of May. And so June, July, this this past seven weeks, you know, I, I would go into this cold. So, you know, I needed to be linked up into an existing uh, services that these people are receiving. So began having meetings at the rescue mission, and they have a lot of integrated efforts uh, really focused on trying to get these people housed, which is a critically important issue, um, as well as their social addiction needs, psychological, psychiatric needs, because there's a high, high incidence, obviously, of addiction and psychiatric problems. But they didn't have a medical component. So I began meeting on a weekly basis with the uh, with this group of individuals that are comprised of the United Way and Rescue Mission, Salvation Army, Catholic Charities, some of the, some of the addiction treatment centers, the free clinics of which uh, one of them, I've, I've been working the past 20 years at Polvarello, which is a free clinic run by the Franciscan Sisters uh, near Assumption Church on, uh, was that State, not Salina, I think, and uh, no, State Street. Um, in addition to that, Rama Clinic, which is a free clinic that's sponsored by the, the um, Islamic uh, Association of Central New York on South Salina. Um, these clinics are open for indigent patients. They don't see any homeless because the homeless can't necessarily go to the clinics, these clinics either. Um, and so part of this program is to uh, infuse the Rama Clinic, which I'll be taking over as medical director in September, to infuse their population with homeless individuals and other individuals on the street to have care that's also given there. Um, so in any event, backtracking a little bit, so I met John Tamino through this group of, of um, this larger group mm -hmm. of agencies, services, etc., and um, I began riding along with him. So as he gives out sandwiches, I take care of their medical stuff that they need. It's a van. Um, he's got supplies in it. We supply it to a point. Um, and uh, so when you, when you say supplies, like what sorts well, of he medical gives, he things? Gives, he, well, right. So he gives shoes, socks, clothing, food, and then I have. So the way it currently is. So I'll give you. All I can give you is a few examples. So currently, um, we've. I've seen uh, a couple of patients. So one patient came in with an infection of the arm, uh, and uh, after intravenous drug usage. Um, and I was able to, s to see the infection and uh, start antibiotic treatment immediately for that. Um, and that was, so at the, that point, I prescribed the medicine and we went and bought the medicine for the patient, gave the patient the medicine for this. It wasn't very much money, but still, you know, mm -hmm. we didn't have it up front. 
two days later, I saw him back again, and the infection had coalesced in, into uh, to, uh, an abscess on the arm itself. So I was able to drain the abscess in the van under sterile conditions. So we had saline, betadine, gauze, uh, you know, um, uh, and uh, 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 knife, et cetera, to drain the abscess. And two days after that, I saw the patient again. Uh, that site was clean at a drain, but as, as they are wont to do, these, these uh, the abscess tracked up into the antecubital fossa, which is the bend in your arm. And it got a little bigger than what, uh, what I could handle on the van, so then I just drove him to the ER. So he then was taken care of and got better. So that would have festered, got in, in blood infection, heart infection, six weeks, and the patient would have been debilitated and had a very bad outcome, uh, I think, if that wasn't the case. Uh, another guy that, you know, a lot of these folks um, um, just need medication, so I'll just serve as their doctor. I saw a guy with a blood pressure 220 over 120, which is quite high. Um, significant history of high blood pressure, was stabilized on medicines, and then he became homeless three years ago. So we got him back on his medications. People with lung diseases, inhalers, I'll prescribe for that. So those little bit of experiences um, now knows, knows what I, I know what I need now for this. So I'll need an upfront medical bag that'll take on-site prescriptions. This is on-site medications and supplies to the to that individual from my med bag. This is this is just bread and butter type medicine, antibiotics, inhalers, uh, other types of uh, you know blood pressure medications that I might be able to provide on-site at the time. Um, this is very similar to what the international the IMR. We go out to the to the community, say in Haiti or. or uh, Puerto Rico, they don't have anything there, so we bring meds with us. So that, that sure. kind of front-loaded thing. In addition to that, the back part of it, in terms of free medications um, for patients, um, the uh, upstate has now has an, a community pharmacy in the hospital. So they now have, um, you know, like a Walgreens, but it's an upstate, mm -hmm. it's an upstate outpatient pharmacy in the hospital. That just was opened. Uh, with a significant effort to uh, provide medications for home as patients are discharged to cut down on their length of stay in the hospital and to give them medicines that they'll need for their uh, for home um, to get them jump-started for that. But we'll use that type of service to provide medications for these folks uh, free of charge. Um, and the initial funding has been provided by uh, Bankers Healthcare Group, um, seed money for that, that those services. The patients have Medicaid. A lot of these folks have Medicaid. We've had people come out and sign them up for Medicaid on site with a laptop, get them in, you know, into the system. Then I can prescribe the medicines through that process. They can still get the medicines there. We will commit to get them, getting them their medicines if they can't get to upstate. John and the team, uh, the other folks, members of the team, will commit to giving the medications, getting the medications from, from upstate. So the emergent, urgent need was just the medication and supplies need that we've been able now to, to have that. Um, and and do, you, do you go out every day or right, every so week? So right or? now I'm going out uh, twice a week with John and then sometimes twice a month to weekly with the rescue mission folks. John services the Syracuse um, area, this, the, the city, and then the larger Onondaga County is serviced by uh, the rescue mission folks. I saw a guy under the bridge. Um, few weeks ago who rolled down this the embankment and was in was he cracked his head on the on the pavement on i-80 i-481 and uh got sutures and was all messy and i pulled the sutures out and took care of him there 
So, um, um, uh, so that's with, with rescue mission. But going forward, uh, what I want to do as far as expanding the program is to identify what the need is. And I know that the number of patients we're seeing is low-balled. Um, and we did a small um, um, survey uh, last year at, at Upstate, the emergency department seeing 60, 60 patients per month that are homeless in the emergency department. Those are identified by putting X's in the boxes instead of their address and instead of zip code. I know it's lowball. The people will not, they'll either not have the X's in it or something else will get messed up, or they won't identify as homeless because of the stigmatization with that. So what I'm working with the emergency department and with the case management and social workers in the emergency department, as well as hopefully we can expand to the inpatient services at Upstate, will identify and discharge these folks and get them enrolled and have me as their primary care provider if they don't have one that allow me to have access to their records as well as enroll them in Rama Free Clinic for backup, for labs, et cetera, that I may need. And then we'll have, have uh, kind of forward, you know, have, have a jump on that need in the street so that I can then find out where they're hanging out at then we can get the services to them, and so it'll be more of a standardized thing. Because right now it's it's John knowing these people on the street and the ones that he knows about, the ones that Rescue Mission knows about, goes goes and sees. But we, we need to expand our services, so it'll be more than just a couple of days a week as, well, it's as we develop. really nice to hear about this that you're doing. I appreciate you uh, coming in to share this with me. My guest has been Dr. David Lehman from Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, we'll ask two medical ethicists to help solve a healthcare dispute. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you are someone's healthcare proxy and you're trying to follow their wishes, what happens when different members of their healthcare team give you a differing prognoses? Well, this segment we're going to focus on um, how experts go about coming to a resolution. So here in the studio with me are two professors of bioethics and humanities who are part of the team at Upstate that provides ethics consults in a variety of patient situations. We have Dr. Thomas Curran, who has a uh, background in neonatology and pediatrics, and Dr. Robert Olick, who specializes in law, end-of-life issues, and the physician-patient relationship. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So we ought to say up front, too, that this is a de-identified case, and situations like this come up in the hospital. And So maybe you... Uh, Dr. Kern can explain um, this situation. Sure. Well, uh, to, to reiterate, uh, we would, of course, we de- de-identify all these cases to protect uh, patient confidentiality. Uh, and uh, with that being said, uh, this is based on a case that we actually uh, did with our consulting service uh, recently. So Mr. C was a 70-year-old male. He had a complex medical history with a terminal gastrointestinal cancer. Um, He had a very, very rocky course that included multiple major abdominal surgeries. And in fact, he had a large open abdominal wound when we consulted on him because he was so sick they couldn't even close him up. Uh, He he had had decisional capacity until uh, about 14 days before we were consulted uh, when he developed a severe pneumonia that required him being put on a ventilator. 
And uh, so when we were consulted uh, by the healthcare team, they wanted to help clarify his goals of care. His healthcare proxy was his sister, uh, Claire, and she stated that uh, Mr. C had told her that he'd be willing to have a trial of ventilation, but he would not want to live the rest of his life on a ventilator. And as you may imagine, that is a difficult situation to, to quantify exactly what it means. Okay. Does stuff like this kind of situation probably happens frequently? Certainly when someone gets becomes very ill, it's not unusual to have multiple different uh, hospital um, teams seeing the patient, and it's also not unusual for different teams to have different opinions about how it's all going to work out. It's, doctors disagree with each other all the time. Sure. So how do you counsel the patient's family or proxy like, who do you believe in that situation? Is it necessarily the head doctor, or is it necessarily the doctor who's telling you what your heart wants to hear? How do you... Well, I think as an ethics consultant, um, we don't sort of choose who to believe or who not to believe, but we try to facilitate um, better communication, better understanding. And in this sort of case, where you're looking at the possibility of a time-limited trial, which is a, a kind of scenario that will come up sometimes even when patients don't specifically request that. Um, while on the one hand it's a value judgment and the ultimate decision uh, more often than not most of the time rests with the healthcare proxy based upon the patient's wishes and values, um, those wishes and values rely, their implementation relies very heavily on the um, accuracy of the clinical information and the um, uh, prognosis for how long perhaps to go with the uh, ventilatory support uh, before you have a level of um, assurance and certainty that uh, the patient's not um, getting any better or not having the kind of situation that they uh, would want. Is there um, a desire to get the caregivers to sort of reach a consensus or? So in this case in particular, something that the general public probably doesn't know uh, because they don't do it is that you can't stay intubated for an indefinite period of time. You typically have about two weeks to be intubated and at the end of that time period you either have to have a tracheostomy or get extubated. And so the, the hospital is working from the perspective of we're, we're going to have to pick a, choose a fork in this There's road to do frame. something. And so the, 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 way, the, the way we try and, I, I don't want to say build consensus, but we try and have a try and set up a group meeting where the various services are represented and let them kind of give what they, their view of the medical prognosis and, and with the healthcare proxy present as well. And those meetings sometimes provide clarity and sometimes pre present more confusing circumstances. And in this particular case, uh, the different services had very different views about how this was going to turn out. I mean, uh, to make it simple, one service thought she was going to get better and come off the ventilator, and the other service thought that she was terminally ill and was, not, was never going to get better. And this wow. is what the healthcare proxy is hearing. Wow. And then they have to decide based on the conversations they had previously with their loved one, brother, in this case, you know, what, the, what they would want. Yeah, so as the as the non-physician here, um, I should say that um, physicians very often face the challenge of how to present situations of uncertainty. You know, um, what is the probability of um, ventilatory support um, leading to 
some level of uh, stability or uh, modest recovery, what is the probability that the patient in this case will uh, never get better? And you know, how long would we want to continue the ventilatory support as a trial uh, before we can be more certain of which way uh, the outcome would be? Uh, and so they face the challenge of presenting that kind of information, often in probabilities, but in other terms, uh, in this case to the healthcare proxy and more broadly to the family. So that's the science part of it. Does religion ever become part of the conversation? Does the proxy bring it up, or does anyone on the team? Absolutely. Every patient comes to the table with their own host of things that they value in their lives, and certainly religion is a fairly common one to help provide guidance. In this particular case, the you know some physicians are more comfortable about talking about death than others, and so they're, they're, they can communicate more effectively when talking about death. Uh, and some families, and not unusually religious families, are more comfortable hearing about death because they think this is not the end. And so that's, you know, it provides them some comfort. Uh, so yes, in, in this particular case, it was, not, uh, it was not something that was brought up, but it definitely is, is a factor in, in multiple cases we've dealt with. So that could enter into... Let me remind listeners, uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with two ethicists, Drs. Thomas Curran and Robert Olick, both of whom are part of the Ethics Consult Service at Upstate University Hospital, and we're discussing the pre- sort of the predicament a healthcare proxy may find themselves in, um, trying to follow their loved one's wishes. So if a patient has written in their advanced directives that they don't want to be kept alive on a ventilator, is that a clear-cut instruction that's easy to follow? Because it sounds kind of straightforward, but what do you think? Um, It depends on the circumstances. Uh, So the idea of saying that you don't want to be sustained on a ventilator um, is a judgment that is connected to a particular medical condition that you may find um, unacceptable. Uh, where you would want to say, um, I don't want the ventilator because I, I prefer to have a comfortable dying process and to continue life on the ventilator under those circumstances um, is not something that I would want. Uh, so uh, to t- tie in a, a little bit to your earlier question about religious values, um, there's sometimes a perception that because the patient has put their wishes in writing that that's all you need to know. But what in fact happens with a healthcare proxy is it's a, usually a very simple, straightforward document that appoints someone else to make decisions for you. And that person is um, tasked with the responsibility and the trust to make judgments about what you, the patient, would want when you're unable to decide for yourself based upon the totality of their knowledge of you as a person and the things you've said and the things you've put in writing. One of those things could be Uh, religious beliefs and values that shape the uh, patient's uh, wishes for end-of-life care. Um, Other things could be how active was the person, um, what did they value in terms of uh, their cognitive abilities compared to their physical um, abilities and functions uh, over the course of their lifetime, Um, what were their Um, commitments, say, to their dependents, to their spouse, to their children, and how does that shape uh, what they would want near the end of life. So the healthcare proxy is supposed to take all of those things into account, as well as the patient's best interest in in reaching a judgment 
and a decision for uh, care. So it's got to be a different conversation in every situation because everyone's lives are, are different. It's got to be a much different conversation for someone if the patient's 40 versus someone who's 70. You mentioned end of life, but ventilators are sometimes, I mean, they're not necessarily only used at end of life, oh, right? Oh, absolutely not. Right. It can be used as an intervention for, a, the classic is a, a severe pneumonia where you require a ventilator for several days and, you, and you are restored to your former level of health. And that is a situation in which many people would choose to be on a ventilator. It is fundamentally different from having a tracheostomy placed, being put on a ventilator and sent to a skilled nursing facility with no reasonable hope for recovery. Many, many people would 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 uh, not choose that as a as as a right. way to live going forward because of as Rob mentioned, where's the quality of life? People might ask in that sort of a situation, and that was in, in this particular case. That's exactly what this uh, Mr. C had said is that much like many of us would. I don't want to live like that. That's not that's not being alive in my estimation. Right. Okay. Um, is it enough for a person uh, who's going to be a proxy to just say that or? What I think I hear you saying is that there needs to be more of a conversation and understanding between the person and their proxy than what maybe a paper would reflect. Right. So as I emphasize um, the point that Tom just made, the key concept in these decisions often is irreversibility. Whether the patient's um, progression toward of disease and illness, uh, progression towards potentially um, the dying process, is reversible or not. And typically patients, when they say, I don't want a ventilator or I don't want a feeding tube, that's based on the understanding that their condition is irreversible and progressive in, in that direction. Uh, so the question about the trial would be, can it be reversed at all? Um, or will it continue to be an irreversible progression uh, through the dying process? Um, and in, in this sort of case, what we would hope is that we sit down and have a family meeting and that the proxy, the sister, uh, would have the opportunity to explain um, what she thinks her brother wanted, why he talked about a trial, uh, what the goals and values um, in that decision were, um, and that together with the physician or the healthcare team explaining uh, more clearly what the prospects are uh, and that typically can change pretty quickly over just a short sure. period of time um, that they would reach a better understanding about what the proper course of care and treatment would be. Can you tell us how this resolved or do you look well, like I, I, a couple things one it was I did the, I actually did this consult and it was clear that um, Claire deeply loved her brother I mean she was trying to represent it was not about her it was about him. And um, she was non-medical. Uh, they were from out of town. As many of our upstate patients, we have a big referral area, so it was a road trip for her, and she, she had been visiting you know, every day. And she'd go, she would go back to the fact that I, was just, I just, just had lunch with him, at the, you know, mm -hmm. with him two weeks ago at his bedside, and he seemed so fine. So, you know, the, the, she wasn't really, she was trying to do her best, but she wasn't ready, she wasn't ready for him to die. And that's hardly unusual. Right. Uh, and so I think that was one of the, the, that was one of the kind of rate limiting factors. And so when we sat down with the group of, of docs and, and Claire, we recommended, one of the, one of the big problems we had was we, there was too many chefs. She needed to get news from one source so that there would be one story. And everyone's admitted has a primary attending and we felt that should be the person who, 
who uh, was speaking to her. Uh, and as it turned out, um, she was ultimately persuaded uh, that this situation may turn around. And, and, and in that instance, but, but because as I mentioned before, you can't be, be intubated in, indefinitely, she consented to placing a tracheostomy. And um, Mr. C was transferred um, to a skilled nursing facility with a trach with a trach and a vent, and uh, I, I felt like I didn't think he was going to recover, uh, and so I felt badly that it, that it turned out that way. But it it did um, reemphasize how important it is to have a really detailed discussion with your healthcare proxy. So. Uh, I, I think I think ultimately Claire was comfortable with it, but I'm not sure that that's what Mr. C had kind of suggested. Not exactly to her. the resolution. Mm -hmm. Yes, but still, this is a, this is a good case to point out the discussion that needs to take place with this. So I appreciate you both being here to talk about this. My guests have been Drs. Thomas Curran and Robert Olick, both professors from Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. The marvels of modern medicine are many. Two of our poets celebrate what has become commonplace, cataract surgery and prednisone, but they remind us how miraculous their effects can be. First is Virginia poet and author Jacqueline Jules, who salutes her grandmother's new sight, here is unclouded vision. Her lenses, implanted to uncloud aging eyes, sparkle now, like a bit of glitter on a card, rhinestones on a t-shirt. Twinkle in her eye, an old cliché, common long before surgery was routine, suggesting joy or affection, intangibles that lift heels off concrete, make us notice yellow petals pushing through sidewalk cracks. My grandmother visits museums again, marvels at details, stops to read each acrylic label on the wall. Next is Michael Hardy, a psychologist and psychoanalyst from Kansas City. He's the author of the chapbook, The Statue Game. He feels the transformative powers of a common medication in his poem, Prednisone Lazarus. Somewhere I have the memo, I'm sure, all the consequences, bone loss, cataracts, low immunity, dangerous withdrawal, and the greater importance of proper balance and nutrition long-term. But my God, Eureka, today the pain fled downhill, fever unwrapped its prickly gauze, breath flowed to my limbs, and now the bare branches are glowing, and there's nothing so lovely as this low gray sky. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, 
brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, why it's important that Upstate has a new department of geriatrics. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.